Good to see you at eight o'clock again. Uh, this morning, I want to uh, return to Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen to twenty-three. Uh, it's a fabulous <coughs> passage on the weekend of a coronation. Uh, last night was the first coronation of a British monarch that I got to at least watch on telly, and. Uh, I observed that in my family, different people watch the coronation uh, for different reasons. Sue watches the coronation for fashion. There was a moment in the uh, telecast where I thought, yeah, I've, I've heard, I've seen enough. And she said, no, no, because the ladies were coming on to talk about the fashion. Uh, Charles had requested something low key, no tiaras. What would they do under that request? Uh, my uncle loves all things military, so him coming and viewing the coronation, the strong relationship between the British monarch and the uh, armed forces is evident to all in any of these spectacular things that uh, the Brits uh, celebrate with. Uh, I heard Amanda and Pat talking about the music and they went into the deep knowledge of uh, Zadok the priest coming on at just the right moment being just the right song. In those kinds of discussions I find it's better to keep my mouth shut and just listen. They were, they were observing. Uh, for me though, I watched the coronation for one thing, the chair. Uh, uh, enjoying history and enjoying uh, British history in particular my fascination was with the chair of Edward I. Uh, it was uh, requested in a Gothic style, the coronation chair, which has been used from the 14th century onwards. That kind of story captures my attention. Uh, it contains the stone of scone, which apparently the Brits stole from the Scots at some point as a symbol of power. And I was waiting for the moment when Charles sat on this chair, a chair that only the uh, English monarch uh, has authority to sit on. I was discussing this with our staff during the week and I asked them, if you were in Westminster Abbey and you saw that chair empty, would you go and sit on it? It went about 50-50. I'm not going to name who would and who wouldn't. I would certainly be tempted to sit on this uh, chair that is made only for the monarch uh, of England to be able to sit on. Uh, why am I talking about chairs? They're symbols of power and authority. And this morning, we're going to be invited to see that Jesus is the majestic powerful king who is worthy of our praise and worship. If I can put it in a cheeky way, I want to challenge you this morning and ask you, is your Jesus too small? Because we come to a fabulous passage that shows us how majestic Jesus is. And uh, in verses 15 to 23, we're going to be invited to bow the knee to Jesus our king to honour him as uh, the king of all things. And there are two big ideas in this little passage. Jesus is the Lord of all things. And Paul uh, shows us 
how that is so. And the second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is the saviour of all things. And both those points are shown to us here that we might continue in faith, recognising Jesus as our King. Let me come to that first point then. Jesus the Son is the Lord of all things. We've already heard it twice in our service, this passage. Uh, I really want you to slow up and read slowly through these verses because they show us Jesus in a magnificent and glorious way and they invite us to see he is our King. Notice at least five things here. First, notice how uh, the section starts. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Now when you stop and think about that, that's an extraordinary thing to say about Jesus. They are words which say, when you see Jesus as he comes to us, clothed in the Gospels and the Scriptures, we see the one who perfectly reflects the glory and majesty of God. And if you want to know God, we come to Jesus and see that he is the image of the invisible God. In the last couple of months, a man up at uh, Pierce's Corner uh, has embraced Christian faith. He's been in our orbit for a, uh, a number of months, even a couple of years. But this passage, this verse, this idea moved him forward to seeing that when you see Jesus, you see God visible. And what an extraordinary thing for us to be reminded of. Second thing I want you to notice that it says, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now the theologians like to wrestle about the original words that are used here, but I want you to see that in its, uh, uh, its uh, straightforward meaning is, Jesus is the one for whom the whole of creation is made. He's the heir of all creation. Uh, Elvis Presley died on the 16th of August 1977, a different kind of king. Uh, Lisa Marie Presley was uh, nine years old when he died. In his will, uh, Elvis said that she could receive her inheritance when she turned the age of 25. And so it was held under trust till that moment. My point is this, Lisa Marie Presley was the firstborn, the heir of uh, Gracelands and all of uh, Elvis's riches. She was an only child. She was the one who would inherit the whole of the Presley Empire. So when uh, uh, Paul uses this word of Jesus, he's saying the whole of creation is the inheritance of Jesus. You might remember back from last week, back in verse 12, we see that the Father also includes us in the inheritance when we share our faith in Jesus the Son. And so we give thanks to God as the one who uh, is, uh, Jesus is the one 
who is the heir of all things. And again, when you stop and think about that, that's an extraordinary thing to say about Jesus. It doesn't stop there. Look what, hap- what he says next. In Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, I think we can get a little blasé about the wonder of these truths. So this morning, I really want you to say, I really want to be able to say to you, have a look at what this says about Jesus. Creation was brought into existence through him. Creation was brought into existence for him. And, uh, and so we see the pivotal role that Jesus the Son has in the whole of the cosmos being brought into being. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 17. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Not only are all things created through him, but all things are sustained by him. And so we see the scope of Jesus' lordship in these words. There's another extraordinary truth for us to uh, mull over. That Jesus, the Son, was at the centre of all creation. And it would do us good to read this passage next to Genesis and see how Jesus was part of the process by which all things came into being. And the uh, fullness language, which uh, Andrew brought our attention to last week, we see really intensified in these couple of verses. We see the scope of his lordship. He's lord over the heavenly realms. He's lord over the earthly realms. And he's lord over the church. Verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. Uh, He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now we could spend a lot more time unpacking these descriptions of the Lordship of Jesus, but I want it to stir your heart and open your eyes that we might lift our heads to the majesty. And, And this little section comes to a climax with these words, so that in everything... He might have the supremacy. Now, if you're investigating Jesus for the first time and you read these words about Jesus, what impression do you get about him? Not merely gentle Jesus, meek and mild, which is true of his care and compassion in the Gospels, but Lord of the universe, Lord of the heavenly realms, Lord of the earthly realms and Lord of the church. So let me ask my first diagnostic question this morning. So what? What's the significance of being of Jesus being described in these ways? Well, let me tease out a couple of implications. Jesus is Lord and you are not. Jesus is Lord, 
and I am not. Jesus is Lord and Charles III is not. Jesus is Lord and Muhammad is not. Jesus is Lord and Buddha is not. Jesus is Lord and Oprah is not. Jesus is Lord and Elon Musk is not. Jesus is Lord and we are not. It's inviting us to see he is the one who is worthy to sit on the throne of the universe. And so we're invited to come and acknowledge his lordship over our life. Sue and I had the opportunity to go to the Sistine Chapel just before we went to Moore College. We did a little bit of travelling. Uh, back in the day, you just lined up waiting to go in. And I remember we had to wait about 40 minutes to get to the front door. And I remember getting to the front door and looking up and see the wonder of uh, the paintings on the ceilings, which uh, Michelangelo painstakingly took to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, paintings that unfold the Bible's story in different ways, the majesty of creation, the uh, authority of the, the, the second last coming of Jesus. And I also remember, as we walked in the door, Sue and I looked up and spent 40 or 50 minutes, as long as we were allowed before we were pushed out by the attendants. The people standing behind us in the line, who had got a little bit frustrated about waiting 40 minutes to get in, I remember the man saying, he looked up and he said, is that all it is? And after five minutes, walked out. Now, my fear for you is that you come to this passage and you read it and go, yeah, 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 is that all it is about Jesus? We're invited to stop, draw breath, and soak in the Lordship of Jesus. And Paul writes this as part of Colossians because he's encouraging the Colossians and anyone else to, who reads this, like us, to say, continue in your faith in Jesus who is Lord of all things. Well, there's a second part to this passage. Jesus the Son is the Saviour of all things. And uh, we notice the shift in the language in this second part from verse 19. Uh, as the Lord of the universe, Paul shows us what Jesus came to do in order to save us. Now, it's worth mentioning, I think, that Paul in his letters is very particular with his language. And especially the language that he uses to describe how Jesus saves across his letters. And Colossians is no different. Uh, we've, al we've already noticed in the opening verses the R words that, Jesus, uh, that Paul uses to describe what Jesus does. In verse 13, God rescues us. And we notice the language of rescue. In verse 14, God redeems us. And we, know, we notice the language of the marketplace where the Son comes by his blood to redeem us back. But in verse 20, we notice that this section uh, uses... Uh, the word reconcile, the language of relationships. And Paul describes what Jesus does 
in the language of relationships, reconciliation. Uh, uh, we see in verse 19 and 20 uh, a description. Paul says this, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now I want you to see that in other letters as well, Paul uses the language of reconciliation. It's the language of relationships. It's the language of two people out of relationship being brought, brought back into relationship. In our culture, it's a word that we see featured in the discussions about the indigenous conversation between the First Nations and the <coughs> European arrivals. In our culture, it's language used by marriage counselling to describe when two people are out of relationship, reconciliation happens when they come back into relationship, often after hard work and hard conversation. And you'll notice that the language of reconciliation includes the language of peace. Two people not at peace coming to peace together. And so Paul uses the language of relationships to describe what God has done through Jesus here. Uh, through Jesus, he'll reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, I think sometimes we shrink the significance of the cross to a personal application. Jesus died for me. But I want you to notice that the language here uh, shows us the cosmic significance of the death of Jesus. Let me read it to you again. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It would do us good to think deeply here that the death of Jesus is of cosmic significance. Not just me making peace with God, but God making peace with the whole of the created order. Uh, in Romans 8, Paul says, the whole of creation is groaning for the day of its liberation, looking to Jesus and his death on the cross to make reconciliation, to make peace by his blood shed on the cross. And verse 21 here shows us what being out of relationship with God looks like. Once you are alienated from God, he says, enemies in your minds, because of your evil behaviour. And when we get to chapter 2, he's also going to say, you were dead, spiritually dead that is, in your sins and in your flesh. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins through the cross. So Paul gives us the description of the person who is out of relationship with God. They're alienated from him as a couple where a marriage has broken down. They are enemies of God. 
not at peace with him, they are spiritually dead. And if this seems a heavy and dark description of the person who's not in relationship with God, it's a reminder all the fresh of our need for our Saviour Jesus. Jesus is the Saviour of all things. Through his blood shed on the cross, we can be reconciled back to God. Now I want to ask my second diagnostic question of this point, so what? So what if Jesus is the saviour of all things and died on the cross? Well, here's some things that tease it out for us. Apart from Jesus, there is spiritual death. Apart from Jesus, there is no reconciliation with God. Apart from Jesus, there is no forgiveness. Apart from Jesus, there is no peace with God. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope of inheritance. And so we're raised to see the significance for us of Jesus being our saviour. He's not an optional extra. But through his blood shed on the cross, he secures our forgiveness. He brings us peace. And he reconciles us back to our Father from whom we have been estranged. Now I want you to see that verse 22 brings it home. Paul says, Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel so here's another touch point where paul's uh, reminding us of the point of this whole letter he shows us jesus savior of all things that we might have faith in him that we might be reconciled to god that we may be uh, forgiven of our failures so that we can stand firm in him established in faith now I want to come back uh, to St Edward's chair I love the movie The King's Speech Elizabeth's father Albert uh, because of the abdication uh, became king and uh, he had a terrible speech impediment, as you're probably aware. It was an Australian, let's call him speech therapist. Uh, the movie unpacks uh, his dodgy background. Who helps Albert come to uh, overcome his stutter. And there is a great scene at the end of the movie. I've got the script here and I want to read it to you because you get a sense of who is worthy to sit on this chair that only the King of England can and this provocative Aussie speech therapist lounges on the chair to provoke the King. What are you up to? Get up! I'm tired, says Lionel. You can't sit there! Why not? It's a chair. It's the chair of Edward the Confessor! 
the throne upon which every king for six and a half centuries has been crowned. It's falling apart, says Lionel. People have carved their initials in it. It needs a stone to keep it from blowing away. That's the stone of scone, the stone of destiny that was once Jacob's pillow. You believe all such bollocks? I don't care how many royal bottoms have sat on it. It's a building block with handles attached. You're like me. You're an actor with stage props. Listen to me. Listen to you by what right? Divine right if you must. I'm your king. No, you're not. You told me yourself. Said you, who, uh, you said you didn't want it. So why should I listen to a poor, stuttering bloke who can't put one word in front of another? Why waste my time? Because I have a right to be heard. Heard as what? A man, I have a voice. Yes, you do, Bertie. And you'll make a bloody good king. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that at 8 o'clock. <laughs> it's the king who deserves to sit on the throne not some imposter like you and me. This passage says, Jesus is the Lord of all things. And Jesus is the Saviour of all things. So let me gently say, get off the throne and allow Jesus to sit there Honour him by your faith and continue in him, knowing that he's the Lord of all things and the Saviour of the world. And Paul finishes this little segment with these words. This is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and earth, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen.